We'll go ahead and turn to Psalm chapter, chapter, Psalm 42. We're actually this week and next week going to look at what many would simply consider a single psalm that has two distinct numbers. Psalm 42 and 43 do actually go together. And I think that if, uh, if, if you were to look at it and read them together, you would see that there is a distinct pattern. Why it was ever distinguished between 42 and 43, we don't know. But I think the evidence is strong and it is there that this is really a singular psalm. But we're going to tackle it in two weeks. We're going to do chapter 42 today and we're going to do 43 next week. But in this short little two-part series in these two psalms, the theme remains hope. Hope. Hope has taken a huge hit over the last 18 to 24 months. In our trek, in looking for that place that God would send us, we have seen the doubling down of hopelessness that that COVID has afforded churches that have gone through the loss of a lead pastor for various reasons, some through death, some through disqualification because of moral failure. And even just that void of leadership that is not there for whatever reason. Each church has had the opportunity to remember that the chief shepherd could never disqualify himself and the chief shepherd has already died and could never die again and the chief shepherd has never left them. You know, we are such a people of I don't, I don't want to say necessarily a cult of personality, but that really is maybe the only real descriptor of, of us as humans, maybe particularly as Western humans, that we tend to grasp and hold on to particular people that we think will lead us in the right way. To some degree, that's okay, but it needs to be held on to loosely. Because again, for the people of God especially, We have a chief shepherd who will never fail us, ever. And we need to remember that because it is easy for us to feel like that our hope is being renewed because of the change of circumstances. So for instance, did it not feel better when lockdowns were being lifted, when mask mandates were being softened, although we very well may be heading back into many of those, that it felt like there was a little bit of sometimes even literal breath of fresh air. It's not bad. Nothing wrong with that. Our family has certainly experienced that. We have been through a unique season for six years. And during this six-year stretch, we knew that God may not ever actually provide for us our own house again or some other situation. He may very well have designed for us to live in the circumstances we were living in and to do so as best we could joyfully and to serve right where we were. We still had a hope for a change of circumstances. And we failed many times when what seemed like apparent change is about to happen, a church about to call us or, or seemingly us about to agree to a church only for something in the end to fall. And that disappointment is very real. And whether 24, 48 hours or a couple of weeks, you'd have to muddle through that disappointment, that disillusionment. 
Because you realize once again, it's so easy to place your hope in a potential change of circumstances. But every one of those are about this world. As I've looked back at the church over the last year and a half to two years, and as we have seen so much division in our country, and we've seen so much happen among evangelicals and Western Christians when it comes to the political landscape, and this is no, this is not a, a political talk, but it does actually relate to our text today. That I'm not so sure that COVID and all of its effects and I'm not sure that all the discord that we've seen racially, and I'm not sure that all the even political turmoil that we have seen has necessarily caused us hopelessness as much as simply put on display that our hopes were misplaced in the first place. Perhaps it is a hyper-contextual set of circumstances that has exposed that when things are easy, it is easy for us then to make sure that our hopes are in places that we don't even know that they land in places that are actually false and on shifting sand until the sand shifts. And the only reason I really say that is because I have seen so much anger and venom come through the local church, the Western church, when it comes to earthly circumstances not going their way. And they try then to grasp and grapple after earthly kingdoms being established in their way as if any person, any party, any system could possibly afford them hope. And it makes me wonder, are you not reading Operation World? Are you not seeing that some of the most hope-filled people in the world are actually in context where it's never been okay to be a Christian? Ever. Where they are riddled with disease all the time. And that's not to beat us down and say, oh, shame on us. I'm just saying we have experienced, unlike any season perhaps in your lifetime, very real, at least Western global and now global set of circumstances that has produced real, legit hopelessness. Some of you have faced and ex experienced depression that you've never experienced before. And that's not necessarily because your hope was misplaced, but at the same time, it shook you enough that it made you thirsty and longing for something else. And as we look at our text today, my question would be, what are you thirsty for? Let's go ahead and read Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. 
Deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now, before you look up all the way, I do want you to glance at chapter 43, just so I can make my point here. If, if you go on and read how he goes on with vindicate me, you see again four verses leading to again the refrain in verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You actually have those three refrains running through chapters 42 and 43, preceded by four statements of distinct types and timings of hopelessness. And so in chapter 42, we're actually going to deal with the first causes of hopelessness and its remedies, its solutions. And then next week, we're going to look at the third one, which is essentially regarding a hopelessness about the future. Today, though, we're going to really focus on in light of a hopelessness that is produced in the timeliness of what we've seen to this point, which is basically things haven't quite worked out the way that I thought they would. And it's caused me hopelessness. And then in the right now, before you even look to the future, you don't really see much changing. That can be a really desperate situation. If you triple down on past, nothing's worked out too well right now, things are not good. I don't see that changing. I don't see hope for the future. It is a very dangerous place for anyone to be, but especially for the believer who has the capacity because the indwelling spirit to dig down deeper, so to speak, into truth that exceeds all the circumstances that have led to the hopelessness. Now, one thing I want to point out is if you look at the designation, it says to the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. So chapter 42 actually begins the second book of the book of Psalms. Psalms has essentially four different books and they all have some distinct trending themes within them. And starting in chapter 42 through chapter 72 or Psalm 72, we actually have book two. And within book two, you actually have other writers start to show up besides David. You'll start to see more from Solomon. You'll see some from Asaph. But we also will see eight, at least in this section, I think 11 total, if I remember right, from the sons of Korah. Now, here's what's fascinating about the sons of Korah. Korah, so daddy, actually was part of the Exodus. They're from the Levitical tribe. Okay, so... For those of you who remember the tribes of Israel, which tribe is the Levitical tribe? Priestly, right? So they are the worship leaders. They are the ones who actually would give instruction as well. Those are the ones that the body would seek when you look at in the future, like at Ezra and Nehemiah and the circumstances there, they would look to the Levites to explain what was just read out of the Torah. So they would give explanation. In many ways, they were the preachers of the tribes of Israel. 
Korah, actually, if you look in Numbers chapter 6, you'll see. In fact, go ahead and turn there. Probably don't have time for this, but we're going to have fun with it anyway. Since, uh, since I know that next week is coming and that is shorter, I will be glad to stop somewhere midway if I must. Don't worry. But go to Numbers chapter 6. I just want to show you something here that I think is more than just fascinating. If I can remember, it's fascinating if I can remember where my reference is. It really is right here. Okay. So Korah, in response to impatience, to the grumblings of people, actually gathered about 250 other what we would call community leaders or clan leaders amongst the children of Israel and were raising up in a rebellion against Moses. So here you have a Levite, okay, who's supposed to be one who, in a sense, defends the truth, now begins to speculate because of impatience. Basically, becomes hopeless because things aren't working out all that well for them as they wander in the wilderness and tries to get other people to share because hopelessness is a grand platform a palette for those who have their own agendas to come in, stir up fear, stir up anger, and to get you to follow them in their journey. And that's what Korah does. And he gets this rebellion going in Numbers chapter 6. And as they rise up, and as Aaron is then brought before them, Moses tells Aaron and gives a blessing to him and says that, look, we cannot allow this to happen. He addresses Korah and he does crush the rebellion a little bit, but it doesn't really get crushed too much because you don't actually see that until Numbers chapter 16. So if you go to number 16, you'll actually see Korah then show up in the framework, whereas in chapter 6, Moses and Aaron are laying the groundwork for the truth of what's heading into this. It's, it's that truth that they are joined in proclaiming to the children of Israel that's being resisted by Korah. So it goes in here um, in chapter 16, verse 25. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all of their sins. So they got away from Abiram. And the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents together with their wives, their sons, and the little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. Okay, that's when they're starting to second guess. Should we have really done this? Um, because Moses comes back pretty clearly some of these men and these community leaders along with Korah as he raises up this rebellion have come against the true teachings of Aaron and Moses. There's been a lot of evidence during the Exodus that God is with Moses, right? A lot. But it doesn't take much for humanity 
We can't just blame the children of Israel. They get delivered through the Red Sea and it's not much longer that they're griping about not having a Panera close to have something to eat. And yet God has delivered them. Over and over again, that's the case. But that's the same case with us. We forget the deliverance of God only to grumble about things that are lesser really quickly. The root of any rebellion is because we grow impatient with God fulfilling his promises. So if you then flip over to chapter 26 of Numbers. You'll see the account there where as they're going through the various clans and they're giving the various descriptions of all of those who have followed and have gone after in faithfulness, you will also then find that there are those who have not. You will find that there is, starting in, let's see, verse, we'll start with verse, oh, I don't know. Let's just look at verse five. Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, the sons of Reuben and Hanak, the clan of the Hanakites of Pelu, the clan of the Peluites. He goes on. He says, these are the clans of the Reubenites. And he goes on. He gives description. And he says, there's Eliab, the sons of Eliab, Nemuel, Dathan, and Abiram. Okay. They were part of the bad group. These are the Dathan and Abiram chosen from the congregation who contended against Moses and Aaron in the company of Korah. Okay. Again, sons of Korah wrote this psalm. Korah, the dad, led this rebellion. It says, when they contended against the Lord and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah, when that company died, when the fire devoured 250 men and they became a warning. But the sons of Korah did not die. So here you have the sons of Korah who saw daddy swallowed up by the earth as an act of warning along with 250 other men who came up in rebellion against the truth of what Moses and Aaron were preaching and saying and trying to extend the hope of looking to the promised land of God fulfilling his promises months, years into a very long journey that unnecessarily took that long and yet because of their rebellion and God cares about means, he cares about how we get there, that God had a work he was doing to deliver his people, his true chosen and along the way show warnings of what happens when we disobey the Lord? What happens when we rebel against the Lord? And yet in the midst of all this turmoil, when the Lord opened up the earth, he did not allow the sons of Korah to be devoured. I'm guessing that this sticks in the mind of the sons of Korah. It's a pretty pronounced thing to see. They see in the same moment God's wrath and his mercy. Because it would not have been unjust of God to have associated the sins of the father with the sons, uh, with the children as well. You could argue for complicity and yet God has seen fit to deliver some. And it's something when you see a song like Psalm 42 of these musicians, these worship leaders, these Levitical this Levitical worship team, as they write these songs and they are still presently going through difficulty, they are remembering that God sustained them through great difficulty. God who is there is not blind to the sins of men. 
But God is also a God of salvation. He is a God of deliverance. In the midst of just when you thought he wasn't there, he shows up sometimes in wrath, but you can also know that he will show up in his mercy. And the sons of Korah have seen it and they are now singing about it in a sense as a testimonial to themselves and to the throng, to the people around them that will eventually read this, to find hope in the midst of when you feel like God is not there, first of all, don't act like he's not there as if he doesn't see you in you trying to hack hope by simply going after worldly things and essentially sin because you, you and I have a difficulty waiting for God to fulfill his promises. And in that waiting, in that impatience, again, we often run after sin. Don't, don't feel like God's not there. He is there. But it's not just a God who's sitting there waiting to gotcha. He also sees that when you're hurting, when you're suffering and you call out to him and remember what he has done, he will cause you to remember. And even if your circumstances do not change, he will remind you of what those eternal set of circumstances are. Just like we sang earlier, God may do something, but he might not. Reminds me of Hezekiah 3, though the fig tree does not blossom, there's no fruit on the vine, yet... I will praise my God. So this is the author, the corporate author, the sons of Korah, all that they've been through. So the causes for this hopelessness, you see them really in verses one through five. As they begin to write this song, this psalter for us, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so my so pants my soul for you, O God. To show the, the, the desperation, the hunger, but also the object of satisfaction. Please keep in mind, as, as this is being written, there is no change in whatever desperate circumstances they are. We get some hints of what's going on. Because we know, first of all, the first cause is essentially there is a gap, there is a separation. I believe there's actually a geographic separation. Whatever is going on here with the sons of Korah, perhaps they're remembering something with the Exodus, but perhaps I think it's even later and it still seems like in their journey through the wilderness, after what they've seen with what's happened to their father, that they are still in a separate place, like a place of Mount Hermon, of Geysar a place in Palestine that is still a long way away from Jerusalem. But at the same time, as they look at it, they're remembering that there was a time that they were with the throng, with the congregation, going in in song and praising God. So that's a distant memory. So there's a time separation and there's a geographic separation from what they associate with the presence of God. Now, again, don't conflate it because we're, we are not in the Old Testament. We have a Christ who's fulfilled all these things and we'll get there in a moment. But do remember that those causes because of our humanity can still be the same. Whether real or perceived, separation from what we see as being the very presence of God, whether by time, it's been a while since I've really felt him near, felt him close, or even what we've experienced during COVID, even during lockdowns, we were not able to gather together or we weren't able to gather together the same, in the same way, which that's another issue. 
It's one thing for the government to say, no, you cannot worship. It's another thing for them to say, we actually recommend you do this in a different way. And look, I I just, in light of global Christianity, it's really hard for me to tolerate believers who grumble about, well, they're not letting us do church. No, in most regards, they're just not wanting you or letting you do church in just the way you've always done church. You can take, you can make some changes because basically here's the deal. We still have a longer term witness than whatever goes on with the lockdown during COVID. Basically when the, when the lost world sees us complain about not being able to gather in a building per se, and I'm not one of those guys that thinks, well, if you're outside, that's the church. Or if you're at a coffee shop with a brother, that's the church. No, we need to be with the congregation, local members in covenant together. Absolutely. But when the lost world hears us gripe and complain about the comforts of how we gather, they're going to remember that a whole lot longer than lockdowns when it comes to looking at the church. The church should be those that say, you know what, it's it's not fun, it's not convenient, but it's a deferment for a season. Let's be as gracious and as loving and as humble in this as we possibly can. Praise God, we still are not under fear of retaliation to be able to meet. Now, if you're going to go against what mandates have been to, you know, nope, we're, we're going to go ahead and, and just shake our fist at this. As I've seen many people, many pastors, and I've seen many things on social media, people say, oh, they're being persecuted. And I just keep going back to Hebrews chapter 11 and seeing those who are actually sawn in two. And really what you could do is set up chairs outside your building. Okay. You could actually, if the weather's good, I mean, it was hot in some places, again, I'm from Texas, but it was actually kind of a mercy of God that so much of the lockdown occurred during times of the year that you could meet outside. And yet people were griping because they couldn't go in their buildings. Again, guys, don't get me wrong. I I, I know this is the first sermon out of the gate, so I don't want you to hear wrong emphases. I'm just saying that what we are thirsty for and what we associate with the presence of God should not be a particular pew. It should not be a particular architecture as much as it simply should be to be with the people of God worshiping and longing for the hope that we find in God corporately together. If it's not essentially there, then our hope is on something that is wood, hay, and stubble. And God has given us a chance to just get a glimpse of where, man, our flesh just really clings for this stuff. So look, we can cut ourselves some slack. I mean, and I'm not trying to be judgy when it comes to our complaining about these things because I would too. It was not easy to set up things in an interim. It was not easy to take a church to an interim. I, I I was hired one week and literally the next week in March, everything is shut down. So I spent the majority of the interim on Zoom or on Facebook Live with our church. But you know what? At the end, I was still thankful for technology that we could interact some way, but none of us wanted that to displace church long term. No one. And it created a longing in us to get back together. This is the longing. He says, my soul thirsts for God. When shall I come and appear before God? For him, this is associated with temple, with people. My tears have been my food day and night. Do you see the, the liquid correlation? My soul thirsts, pants like a deer for running streams. But all I've had to drink are my tears. Well, that's not enough. There's serious lament going on here. And I feel like that even the seasons we've come out of and and perhaps we're even still in, that we have lost the sense that God desires for the church to know how to lament the loss that, oh, I have taken the church for granted. I have taken gathering with the people of God for granted. 
But you know what? We, we skip that part. We just go to anger. I'm so mad they just won't let me do this. I've seen some people get mad who weren't even darkening the doors of a church for a year or two prior. They're just mad that they couldn't, I mean, if they really were going to go to church, they're just really mad that they couldn't be able to because someone said no. Isn't that our nature? Isn't that our way? Too often the church of the living God has forgotten how to lament loss. And to remember that that lament and that loss that we associate with being satisfied with the presence of God actually should shoot us to lift up our faces, our countenance to the God who has given hope for a future. To remember that we may not have circumstances restored to us now that we're used to, that we like. That in our lament, we should actually use that as a launching pad for a deepening of the right kind of hope. You remember what the scriptures say? You've heard it probably at a, at a few funerals along the way that we do grieve, but we don't grieve as those without hope. Because that is the ultimate deliverance, right? For the believer to be translated out of this world into the next, into his presence. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? As if he wasn't asking himself, other people are saying, well, where is he? You're suffering. You claim God, but where is he? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. A multitude keeping festival. He remembers this. He remembers being with the people of God as they would worship God together and, and their, their place in leading that throng as the sons of Korah, the musicians, the worship leaders missed it so much. I do relate to that a little bit. I'm not trying to say I, I, totally, but I empathize with it in the sense of missing being a pastor, missing being in the pulpit at a, on a regular basis with the people of God who are a gift to me. And yet as much as we have to go through that identity crisis of what we do for God with who we are before God, nonetheless, it's okay to miss that. But at the same time, I was reminded that I'm expendable. And as surely as there's no Levitical tribe necessarily in the heavenlies because we don't need a priest or any other priest because we have one who's alive and well and has fulfilled all of that for all of us for all of time for the, for the redeemed, that there's certainly no pastors. There will be no pastors in heaven, no need. We're all interims. Which brings him to the first refrain. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So I love the interaction here of the sons of Korah. They're, this is not the namby-pamby kind of worship songs that too often you'll hear where it's just kind of Jesus is my girlfriend kind of stuff where it's just a dude sitting at a window, it's raining and there's a, you know, foreigner comes on, I want to know what love is and you're looking out the window pining for Jesus to walk down the sidewalk to rescue you from your loneliness. He is pouring out his guts to the living God. He's asking hard questions before the living God, but he doesn't leave. He stays until the question is even asked of himself. Okay, so soul, 
Look, you remember the way it was. You remember that God has shown up before and he showed up again and again and again. So soul, self, why are you so down? Now, it doesn't mean things are going to change right then. It doesn't mean the circumstances are going to change either. But he's at least asking the hard question and he's giving himself the hard objective answer. He says, hope in God. That is a statement of volition. Hope in God, my salvation. He's done it. He will do it ultimately. But between now and then, I don't have a lot of guarantees, except he is present and he will keep his promises. But it may not look as like I'd like for it to. And as he does this, and as they make this objective statement, you see this truth of what it is to preach the gospel to yourself. You can have your feelings, but I wouldn't trust them. I wouldn't bank on them because they're going to flow. They're going to waver. They're going to be like waves that will toss you here, toss you there. If you react to your feelings, you need to act on truth. And he remembers the truth of God being a God who saves. So his separation of being distant, in fact, he mentions it next. He says, he goes on and says in verse verse six, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Miser. Again, giving us this perspective that he is at a physical distance from Jerusalem, a place associated with the presence of God, because that's where the sanctuary is. That's where the temple is. And as he is distant from this place and it causes him this separation anxiety, we see then the second cause for anxiety, depression, or hopelessness, if you want to call that. And that is storms, turmoil. Look at verse 7. Deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? So again, you see the parallels where he's saying there is separation. I am longing to be with you. I'm apart from you. And then his enemies say, where's your God? They double down what he's already experiencing with a question. Same thing happens here, except in his separation, it's not just being distant. While he is distant, There are storms brewing. Again, you have this liquid language. The breakers, the waves, deep calls to deep. This is a Hebraic phrase dealing with oceans. I mean, this isn't a footprints in the sand kind of picture on the wall, something serene and and you see a sunset. Oh no. This is more like, perfect storm, waves crashing over you. There is no hope. There is no way out. And when you, when you include that with the fact that you are separate, you know, the first thought that came to mind actually was the first time that I spent the night away from home as a kid. I, I, I had not had this, I had not remembered this in years. And so I don't know why it really popped up in my head, but I distinctly remember my first time to spend the night away from my parents was at my grandmother and grandfather's house in a place called Lake Worth, which is parallel or right next to Fort Worth. And it was a creepy house. 
And I mean, it had closets that had doors between a closet to this room and a closet to that room, which is totally cool when you're with your brothers and sisters playing all kinds of games and and all manner of, of secret activities going on. But when you're by yourself with just your grandparents in a creaky old house and you remember where all those doors are, there's nothing good about that. Nothing. To boot, major storm that night. My grandmother had to call my mother and have her drive about, I don't know, 20 or 30 minutes away, about 20 miles away, and come pick me up. I wasn't staying all that long. I was separate, which was causing some anxiety, and then a storm hit, and I was done. I mean, I was 18 at the time, and I, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I think I, I was five or six. I don't remember. But um, whatever the case was, there's, there still is something to that, though, right? Even w- whether we're children or whether we get older. So, you go off to college. Any parent of a college student knows what this feels like. There is separation. But then when they experience a storm and it's separate, I mean, you, you feel that pain, but you also know it's a unique difficulty for them. There's separation and there's a storm. So what you guys have been through as a church, you've had separation in time from pastors. But your hope's not in a new pastor. Okay, hopefully it's in the God that the new pastor presents before you all the time. You've also had storms during that separation. You've literally had a pandemic. You've had separation and suffering happening all at the same time. As many churches, you are not alone in that combined effect of not being able to be together as often as frequently. And it's, it's hurt even as you've regathered because some did not come back. But then you experience that storm and that pain and perhaps we're seeing another wave of it. Maybe we can respond differently this time if we do have to shut some things down. Who knows? But we don't have to be those who are riddled with fear because we have a God who rules over storms. Those breakers don't overcome him, right? So in all this, we end up seeing what our strategy is. And I'll, I'll have to quickly go through this and my apologies for going a little bit long today. Um, but I, I think it's important for us to see this, that in these storms, we see that we do have reasons for hope. God has saved, we see this in the refrains, God has saved. He saved, Ephesians 2, 13 and 18 through 18. But now, In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, their separation, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, in context, he is talking about Jews and Gentiles being separated kind of ethnically and in their worship perspectives, being brought together as the body of Christ. But he also then likens it to what it means to be separated as unrighteous before a righteous God. He says, for he himself is our peace, our reconciler, the one who brings us together, who literally draws us near, who is made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility or the distance. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, which spiritually they were both far off, For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Only through Christ 
is that separation mitigated? So whether you have a physical separation from the body of Christ for a season, or you just are feeling a separation because it's just distant, you just haven't felt or heard him, you need to remember the Christ. He has done this. God is present. We don't have time to read it, but Luke 8, 22 through 25 speaks of that account where Christ calms the storm. He takes a nap. The disciples freak as any of us would. They wake Jesus up. Do you not know what's going on? He speaks to the waters. And you know what they say? Even before you hear a real sign of relief in that passage, you actually hear them say, who is this that can calm the seas? Guys, I'm convinced that when it comes to separation and presence and the calming of storms, it's not so much that we actually feel like that God is not with us. We just actually don't know the nature of his presence. All the more reason as we lift up our heads to look to God in Christ. So that's really essentially the strategy, guys, is to remember the truth. If you want hope in a time of separation or in a time of storms, you need to remember truth. Remember that you have a Christ who is with you. If indeed you are in Jesus Christ. Now, if some of you are here today and you are separate, you are thirsting for something, and maybe you're here even looking for something, your religious right, just basically going to church or practicing moral behavior, is not going to get you there. It will not sustain itself, nor will it satisfy the living God because of all that he has demanded of those who would ever be his own. Only Christ could have fulfilled that. The only one who can mitigate the distance between you and a holy God is the Holy Son of God, Jesus Christ. So if you are thirsting for meaning and purpose with God, you're only going to find it through Christ who calms those storms and forgives you of your sin. You have to have faith and belief that he is just simply who he said he was in the scriptures and is alive. He can save you. But church, we have to remember what's true. We should seek to be with the body of Christ every opportunity that we get. Perhaps COVID allowed us and afforded us the opportunity to, to remember, I shouldn't take this lightly. My soul really does need that. And this isn't the guilt plea of, hey, you got to come to church. It's the new guy. No, our souls truly need this. It was actually a real gift for my wife and I to go through this both, yes, during the interim, but also just as parishioners as congregants, to just miss being with the people of God. So don't forsake the assembly of the saints. Be with them. But at the same time, please don't come here if you have COVID. That's not loving. That's legalism. So it's not good for your soul. It's bad for our bodies. <laughs> but do let us know so that we can care for you in the best absolute ways that we can. Remember what is true. There are lots of strategies. I'm gonna get more to that next week because um, I'm far out of time for today. But um, guys, I just, I, I at least want to just boil it down again to remember 
all that the sons of Korah saw, God's wrath poured out even on their dad because of his rebellion, but then also God's mercy and deliverance by not killing them and then actually employing them in the service of worshiping him. Can you imagine the black mark on their family name? But they become the lead worshipers in the temple. What a beautiful thing, beautiful picture of restoration and grace. And they give us this song of even though we face separation from him at times, sometimes even just circumstantially, and we even feel that loss and we're thirsting and hungering, we need to stop for just a minute and say, you know what, I do long for something, but what is it? And why am I still so thirsty? It's good to examine yourself just a bit and say, what am I actually thirsty for? Well, if you're a Christian, I can tell you, you're really thirsty for just the presence of God. And to know that, you just need to remind yourself of objective truth. You can pray for circumstantial changes. We, we love that we now have our own house for right now, but I, I'm also freaking out at the expense of all that uh, of down the road. I'm, I'm certain it's going to be a money trap. See, I'm really fit for the Northeast because I'm, I'm a complete cynic on just about everything. And yet my hope is in Christ. So um, maybe I should be full out in New England, but that's also why I'm a Red Sox fan. Sorry. Um, and, uh, but I, I just, I, I will just tell you over and over again, we must preach the gospel to ourselves. We can have our feelings, we can pour our hearts out to God, but our strategy for battling despondency, for our hopelessness, for even depression, and no, I'm not saying that's the only way to solve true depression, but I am saying for us as Christians, we must tackle it with a reminder of what is true, not just react to what we feel. It will help you. And coming with the throng, the congregation, is one way that we, in kind of this back and forth way, remind one another of what and where our hope is. Right? That's why we are here. To be renewed in our hope so that when we go back to a week that's just going to throw hopelessness in our face for all you teachers going back to school. (laughs) For all the uncertainties that are going on in local governments related to whatever mandates are or are not. And whatever your perspective is there. As, as my mentor tells me over and over again, you will not regret being gracious. I promise you, it actually will stave off your hopelessness and it's a way of reminding you of the truth, which is God saves. So I'm gonna be gracious because he saved me. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your patience with us, your endurance, and thank you for the body's patience and endurance with a long morning. And I pray that they would... Uh, Offer that same grace as, Lord, we we desire to have your word open to us, absolutely. And we want it to be palatable. But God, we are also reminded that this season has been a very dire season of hopelessness and has even brought some measure of depression on some. And we pray for relief in that. And Lord, where you see fit that circumstances can be relieved, that new jobs can be afforded, that there can be provision that maybe comes from really unique sources and, and you do again change the outlook for many. My prayer is for our church, God, that we would find our hope squarely in you and you alone. And that if we are given that temporal grace and mercy of a changed set of circumstances, that we leverage that for your good, for your glory. We exalt you in it. But God, if our storms persist, help us to learn from our reactions and responses to when we've gone through storms before. 
and help us to lift up our heads more quickly. Maybe even more honestly. Yes, about how we feel, but also about what we know. And in doing so, God, I pray that it would produce in us a a real depth, a real deep sense of empathy and ability as a church to lament loss, to really hurt for people. But only because also our truth and our doctrine goes down even deeper. And our worship becomes louder. And our reach becomes more extensive. Because we've tasted hopelessness and we know that apart from you, we would have none. No hope at all. We pray this in your name. Amen.